10 o'clock straight up. It's time for WISA Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks so much for joining us. On today's program, we give voice to our community as we share more thoughts from our listeners who have joined us in our Alone Together program. We've also got aviation commentary from Dan Patterson, the best of Dayton Youth Radio, and a whole lot more. Up first... Over the past few weeks, the COVID-19 crisis has completely upended life as we know it. Dayton Daily News investigative reporter Josh Schweigert has been reporting on how the pandemic is affecting the people and businesses here in the Miami Valley. And he joins us today to talk a little bit about what he's found. Josh, you recently wrote about what people in the Miami Valley were not only afraid of during this time, but also what was giving them hope under some difficult and unprecedented circumstances. Tell us what you heard. So we spent some time out talking to people in the community, talking to leaders across multiple sectors, and most importantly, perhaps, uh, people in their homes. Uh, the first time I ever interviewed somebody through the, their second floor window. And what we heard, I mean, the biggest concern repeatedly had to do with just that uncertainty. How long is this going to last? People just want to know what they're in for, especially business leaders and education leaders and people who are trying to help organize large organizations. And the residents we spoke to, a lot of them were just concerned about knowing how big of a problem this was, where the testing was, uh, and making sure that people were getting tests. One refrain that we probably heard more than anything was, you know, if anyone is prepared for adversity like this. It's the Dayton area. Uh, 2019 was a hell of a year. We had the KKK rally. We had, obviously, the Oregon District shooting. We had the um, tornadoes come through, and we were tested, and we stood up to that test. And I think a lot of people feel that um, we learned things from that, both organizationally in terms of how to respond and how to rally together with our neighbors, and also sort of spiritually or psychologically that we can overcome adversity. You also spoke to Oregon District patrons in the final minutes before Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's order that all bars and restaurants in the state shut down operations. What was that night like for you and for the people you were with? There was a range of emotions. I mean, this was part of our town that dealt with some serious tragedy last year. And, man, here's another blow, right? There was a lot of somber feelings, uh, some strong bitterness, uh, and lots of sadness. I mean... The Dublin pub, obviously, is one place we wanted to visit because this was days before St. Patrick's Day, which I don't know if you've been to St. Patrick's Day at the Dublin pub, but it is a massive event. They build this giant tent next door, and there's thousands of people there. By contrast, there was maybe 100 people in the bar at the time. Uh, a band that was supposed to play St. Patty's Day night, Jameson's Folly, just showed up and they said, you know what, we're going to perform for free tonight. Um, it was a celebratory, almost defiant tone. And then you went down the street and talked to some of the uh, employees at Toxic Brew Company, uh, and they were angry. And I don't blame them for – I mean, they their livelihoods just got upended. They're being told, as of tonight, you can't work anymore. You can't get tips if you're a bartender or you're a server, and we don't know what the future holds. And what is your sense going forward how the Miami Valley will fare if this crisis goes on indefinitely uh, and how its residents may come out on the other side of it? Oh, that's up to us, right? So we – all need to figure out a way to help each other through this time. 
We need to support local businesses. That's something that I heard from a lot of people, making sure that money stays in the local economy whenever possible. And we are going to have neighbors that are going to have some serious needs right now. We have lines around the block that we've covered at the local food pantries that are seeing unprecedented numbers. I've talked to the United Way 2-on-1 helpline people who are seeing tons of calls from people that they have never heard from before. There's food scarcity issues from people either A, who lost their job, or elderly people who are afraid or can't leave home and are trying to figure out how to get food to their house. So we're smart, we're resourceful, we're the birthplace of innovation, and so we can figure out a way to to get through this working together. But um, we just need to remember that as we're in our houses all over the Miami Valley individually, we're, we're facing a big issue together as a community. And so I think the people I spoke to all said that, that that's what we have to keep in mind. Josh Weigert, investigative reporter with the Dayton Daily News. Thanks for your reporting and thanks for your time with us today. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it. When Ohio first ordered its bars to close, beer sales in grocery stores jumped 42% that week. But for small craft breweries, tap rooms, and restaurants, those sales are often the largest and most reliable revenue streams. That leaves a lot of locally owned breweries looking at a big net loss. WISO's Jason Reynolds reports. A lot of Ohioans are dealing with the coronavirus outbreak by cracking open a cold one. But that doesn't mean local breweries are doing well. Nick Bowman, one of the founders of Warped Wing Brewery, says his wholesale business is on a roller coaster. Right when the stay-at-home went into effect, we saw a huge surge at the grocery stores and the, and the beer sales. The, you know, they loaded their pantries with everything from food to beer and all that. And then the week following, we saw a major slowdown. And since in-person drinking has been banned, brewery tap rooms have become ghost towns. That's been tough on Warped Wing. Taproom sales are a large portion of their business, and they have a much better profit margin than selling wholesale. Warped Wing has opened its beer cellar, offering vintage dark and barrel-aged beers to people who are willing to pay a premium price. They've also started a curbside pickup service and a home delivery service. Bowman says those services are growing fast, but it's still not the same. They've had to lay off more than 20 people over the past few weeks. They're our motivation to keep this thing going so that we can get you know, our family back intact. For some other small breweries that are even more reliant on their tap rooms, things are even harder. Justin Conan owns Star City Brewery in Miamisburg. Our business model isn't around packaging, so we do not actually sell to grocery stores. Our goal is to have people come down and drink beer in our building. So my sales have definitely gone down because a lot of people just didn't even know we were open. Star City has started bottling beers like Imperial Stouts and high-gravity beers. They're also a winery, so they're able to offer their customers a lot more options. They're delivering now, too, but Conan says so far that's been slow going. He says changing so many things about his business and making customers aware of what he's doing isn't easy. It's going to take capital just to like start a new avenue, um, and obviously there's not money coming in, and we're just trying to break even. So, I mean, I know you have to spend money to make money, but here's a situa- I'm, I'm in a situation where I don't have money to spend to try to make the more money, so I'm just trying to make do with what I got in the building right now. Conan says his business can last two, maybe three more months of this. But beyond that, it's impossible to say. Dayton's first new craft brewery opened in 2010. In the decade since, dozens of small breweries have popped up all across the Miami Valley. But Nate Bowman at Warp Wing says those days of rapid growth are gone, at least for right now. That's the, the new world. It's survival. You know, what can we do to survive? It used to be profitability. It's not, it's not nearly what we, we had going, but we're fighting to keep going. If the coronavirus shutdown doesn't last too long, craft breweries expect to bounce back 
and keep some of these new practices, like home delivery. But the longer the shutdown lasts, the fewer local breweries there may be. For WYSO News, I'm Jason Reynolds. And today we've got more voices from our listeners who have shared their thoughts with us on the COVID-19 crisis. Our ongoing project is called Alone Together, and here's what they had to say. During this unprecedented time, I've realized that all of us have a commodity, a precious commodity which is so unusual for us to have as we live our normally busy lives. That commodity is time, and our challenge is trying to figure out what to do with all of it. In our normal, often overscheduled lives, if we see a bit of time available, many of us use it to escape from the busyness and go down the rabbit hole of video games or television just for a little while where we are not responsible for ourselves or others. Now, having so much time on our hands, I think this is the perfect opportunity to choose something which interests us and pursue it with a set amount of time each day. Take music, for example. Giving musical activity 30 to 60 minutes a day for a month or two can be a great start if you're a beginner or a nice way to get reacquainted with an instrument that you used to play. Music teachers, including myself, are getting a lot of experience giving lessons online, which I think can be very effective. My university and private students are also getting better at being instructed in this way with pencil and paper close to their devices and the ability to record demonstrations and take snapshots. Oh, and by the way, I've been practicing my guitar every day, teaching my fingers how to play it better. Not to mention trying new things with the banjo. And who knows, I might get around to learning something about the Arabic oud. Hello, my name is Stephanie Hylensky. Um, I'm the curator of live animals at the Boonshaw Museum of Discovery. I was just calling in um, because I know right now everybody's aware and definitely thankful and grateful for um, grocery store workers, healthcare workers, all of those other people that we really rely on right now during this difficult time. Um, but like I said, I am the curator of live animals at the Boonshaw Museum of Discovery here in Dayton. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking about that animals still require care as well. So our animal care staff are still taking care of our animals at the Boonshaw Museum. We have over 150 different animals at the museum that require care every day. So even though the museum is currently closed to visitors, we are closed but still caring for our animals. Um, and also thinking too about vet offices, zoos, um, aquariums, all the other places that are still currently working and caring for their animals despite having their doors closed. So I don't know if that's something you'd include on your radio program, but I listen to ISO every day. I really enjoy it. Um, and I, it would be nice to have a little bit of recognition for those animal care workers out there who are still um, out there working and taking care of the animals. Thank you so much for your time and stay safe. Hi, WISO. This is Carolina. I live in Dayton. This whole pandemic quarantine thing is kind of strange, isn't it? Um, I've been working from home, doing the, getting used to, I should say, teaching from home. And so far, it's going okay. I really miss my classroom. I miss my students. I appreciate all the music going on in the afternoon. I've been able to share some of the funny songs that you guys are playing about uh, washing your hands and things with my students, and I appreciate that. I just feel like this is... Um, Maybe it's a reset for all of us to kind of slow down and think about the way we are living our lives and the way the things are run in the country and 
I'm hopeful that when we get out on the other side of this, that we take an opportunity to really look at what we've learned and make some big changes in how things are done. And we come out from this making things better for a whole lot of people. That's what my hope is. So peace out. I love you, Dayton. And I'm very, very grateful for WISO for providing me the respite of great music all afternoon and for the updates every day from our governor and keeping us posted on what's going on. I appreciate it all very much. And I love my city. Thanks. Bye. Those are just some of the messages we received from our listeners for our ongoing project, Alone Together. If you'd care to share with us, you can leave a voicemail on our listener line, 937-769-1374, or email a voice memo from your cell phone to alonetogether at wyso.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. Today we bring you the last in our series called The Best of Dayton Youth Radio, a story that first aired three years ago by a Centerville High School student named Mandela Brown. Here's Dayton Youth Radio Project Manager, Basim Blunt. We have a history of mistrust between African Americans and our nation's police officers who have been sworn to enforce the laws in times of slavery, Jim Crow, legalized segregation, and now the war on drugs. Today, we'll hear from Mandela Brown. It was a summer night and only 9 p.m. My three friends and I had gone to get ice cream, but Trey didn't have cash, so we went to the Wright Pack Credit Union so he could use the ATM. The sirens blared as we walked down the sidewalk, breaking the silence of peaceful suburbia. My friends and I covered our eyes from the lights that lit up the night sky like a firecracker on the 4th of July. As I licked my ice cream cone, I knew instantly what was about to happen. The cop, who was white, exited the car. I told my friends to step back and to shut up and to let me do the talking. The officer told us that there had been a complaint about four black males causing a public disturbance in the area. This cop wasn't aggressive with us, but he wasn't friendly either. He wanted to know why we were in the area, and he told us to go home immediately. My friends truly could not believe how we could be seen as a threat. But me, I wasn't surprised, because we're seen as animals, as less than human, as dangerous. I know what I'm talking about because I've been dealing with police since I was 13. My first serious encounter was in middle school, after a Friday Night Lights football game. All the kids were walking up to a popular hangout in warm and cheerful Centerville, and I wanted to catch up with some friends on the other side of the street. I didn't cross at the lights. Like any other suburban teenager, I jaywalked. But... I was a black teenager. That warranted it for me to be arrested and put in handcuffs in front of everyone to see. I was only 13, mind you. I thought I was going to die. How would you feel if you got slammed up against a cop car at the age of 13 with handcuffs on? How would you feel? Would you feel good? Would you laugh? Would you joke around? It went to court and it was thrown out. With the judge saying it was the silliest case he had ever seen. In my sophomore year, I was selling fundraiser cards for my high school track team. It was a brisk February night, and my overeager little brother tagged along to help me. We got through 15 houses without a problem until I saw those ever-familiar flashing lights approaching us, and I just thought, not again. Really? I'm doing something good. 
I'm trying to help the community. I am working for my track coach to sell these cards so I can get these T-shirts. But then the officer exited the car slowly, and this is what made it worse. His hand was on his holster. His eyes locked on my hands. But he never gave me a reason why I was being questioned or why I was being stopped. But just like any other time, he said, go home immediately. But do I get angry? Yes. Do I get mad? Yes. Yes. I believe I'm treated unfairly in this country. Yes, I wish things were better. And yes, I believe that police overstep their boundaries as law enforcement. But that does not give me the right to fire back. Because that makes me just as bad as my oppressor. I'd rather choose the harder right over the easier wrong any day. Because that makes me better. My parents taught me from a very young age to avoid confrontations with police. Because like I said earlier, even the smallest sight of anger could cause a more dangerous and possibly fatal situation to occur. Myself, I come from a privileged background. My father's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. I feel like they named me Mandela for a reason. A man of peace. Not all cops are bad, and not all black men are innocent. I'll admit that. But this endless bloodshed must stop. Because our country is being split into two. I don't want to have to teach my sons to look out for cops like my father did. I want the sign of a police officer to make him feel safe, to make him feel comfortable. I want him to be able to go up to a police officer and say, Officer, I need your help. I don't want him to run from a cop, and I don't want him to have to fear them. That's a story entitled... We are all Americans. Produced by Mandela Brown. Special thanks to Trisha Raypock, broadcasting teacher at Centerville High School. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Project Manager, Basine Blunt. Mandela Brown is now a college student at the University of Cincinnati. That story first aired on WYSO in 2017, and it's the last in our series called The Best of Dayton Youth Radio. Next week, we begin a new series of stories from students at Kettering Fairmont High School. Dayton Youth Radio is supported by the Virginia W. Kettering Foundation, the Ohio Arts Council, and the Veteran Foundation. Some stress in military life is healthy. It can motivate you to develop skills in emergency preparedness and response. But in some cases, the body and brain continue to maintain that state of high alert long after the danger has passed. Today on Veterans Voices, Army veteran Eric Kelly of Dayton tells his partner, Stephanie Kelly, about serving during the time of 9-11 and how it affects him today. I enlisted on February 24th, 2001. My orders for my first day in the military had me report to what's called MEPS. It's the Military Entrance Processing Station um, on September 11th, 2001 at 6 in the morning. So that was that was where I was at when uh, the attacks happened. I was wrapping up with the physical and and I was kind of leaving the – the clinic area for a, for a lobby that they had. And so I'm walking out into the lobby and I can see that one passenger jet had already hit one of the twin towers. You know, we, 
people are just kind of going about their business. People think it's an accident or something like that. But then the second one hit. I'm watching it happen on TV, like on the Today Show or something. And it was like, whoa. Um, did, I don't even – I couldn't even tell you what I thought. It was just like, what? That that, that, that had happened. And so it seemed like minutes, like, but it could have been like two hours. But they took these bleachers like from high school football fields and stuff mm -hmm. and like put – they surrounded the, the office park with them, like real close to the building. And there was like uh, SWAT type people. I don't know if they were in – they were military or like local law enforcement or what. But they were just like walking around in the parking lot with like all this stuff on. So it was like it became post 9-11 real fast at least at the MEPS, right? So is there anything about your military time where you said, wow, I really learned something about myself that kind of carries through to today? Usually when things are tense, um, I'm pretty calm. Just in life, whether it's when you lose somebody or something else that's like a real intense kind of moment where you have to like – like, hey, I got to leave work now, or I have to pack up the kids and we have to go, uh, or like, hey, we're at dinner and something happened and we had to leave the house. Like, um, I'm pretty good under pressure, and so um, people, you know, have told me like, you, you know, you've got a pretty chill way about you, you know. Um, so I've found that out. But what I've also found out is when. There's nothing to be tense about. I can be pretty tense. So it's like I'm always kind of like – it's like this weird situation where it's like, hey, if things are pretty tense, break the glass because Eric's inside. But if things aren't tense, the glass is already broken and Eric's sitting there all, you know, like kind of like raring to go for something that's not there. Yeah, it's like if you're always ready for an emergency. If one happens, you're going to be great. But if not, you're just always ready. Bracing for it. Yeah. So I hope that doesn't bother you <laughs> too much. It's worked so far. Yeah. Let's keep it going. That was Army veteran Eric Kelly and his partner, Stephanie Kelly. This conversation took place at WYSO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WYSO is presented by Wright Pat Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was edited by Tony Holloway and Will Davis. Dayton Youth Radio and Veterans Voices are created at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. You're listening to WISO Weekend on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us. WISO's aviation commentator, Dan Patterson, has had some time on his hands lately, like many of us, and he's used the extra hours of isolation to return to a childhood hobby, the one that got him interested in aviation in the first place. After weeks of isolation at home, which allows the time to do all the stuff around the house that never gets done, the yard, the little things that need fixing, laundry, new recipes to cook, and then decide if you'll ever do that again. Finally, you can get to where this fascination with flying machine had its first expression, make and model airplanes. Even now, at 66 years, I have a stack of unbuilt model kits that I just knew I would get to someday, and that has allowed me to reconsider this lifetime hobby. 
when you're 12 years old, the craft is a learning experience. You can open the box, find all the parts and the instructions, figure out the paint scheme and the decals. It was all an opening to the past. The instructions always had a written history of the plane, when it flew, and who flew it. The pieces that needed to be painted on the inside came first. And as you assembled the bits into a recognizable cockpit with a seat and controls, your 12-year-old imagination took you into the plane and into the sky. Building the engines, you learned how an engine operated and how it powered the plane into the air. Discovering that a propeller is a rotating airfoil by blowing across the blades and seeing it spin was hands-on education. The rest of the structure, the landing gear, the control services, the details, all finished the kid into a complete and recognizable airplane. 12-year-old skills with airplane glue and then enamel paints were sometimes less than perfect. You learned that glue on your fingers was a prelude to disaster when parts ended up sticking to you and not the model. I learned a hard lesson about enamel paints and porcelain bathroom fixtures, which required paint thinner and lots of scrubbing under the unhappy face of my mother. The results of my efforts were soon flying above my bed, suspended on a web of monofilament fishing line that crisscrossed the skies of my bedroom. Aerial feats and combats took place every time a breeze wafted through the windows. Years later, I built models with my sons as they grew up, and those projects together are a cherished memory for us all. Now I have had the time to open the boxes again and found the fascination is still there. The interest in who and when and how that goes together. I realized that the step-by-step instructions taught me how to follow a visual diagram and assemble a complex structure from simpler parts. That led me to the history and the need to know the aviators and see the actual flying machines they flew into legend. My career of images and storytelling had its beginnings there, making models. For WISO, this is Dan Patterson. Wishing you blue skies and tailwinds. Dan Patterson is an aviation photographer and historian. You can find more from Dan on our website at WISO.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is Why So Weekend. This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac. I'm calling from home on my uh, landline because of the COVID-19 lockdown. It is the fourth week of middle spring, and it's the first week of the cows switching their tails moon. It's also the first week of the sun in Taurus. And it's the week of Earth Day, which is tomorrow, April 22nd. I recently came across my old copy of the Bach Flower Remedies, and browsing through its pages, I was once again attracted to the ideas of the early 20th century homeopath, Dr. Edward Bach, who believed that nature was the source of all healing, and that the essence of certain plants and flowers could, together with the right attitude and the body's own immune system, help to manage disease. Then I went through the herbals I had collected over the years and I ruminated on alternative thinking, more ancient thinking really, about the resources of the world around me. Such a 
practical application of nature has often has a, a new age tint about it something of the occult or hokey that is associated with belief in fairies and gnomes and angels creatures that are marginalized in most serious conversation the paranormal faith energy work and the vibrational powers of metal stones plants and icons are are not important dimensions of western culture but the philosophy of box flower remedies is a reminder that harmony with nature and the benefits of that harmony require more than science and technology the fundamental principle of conservation and green action is in my feeling love if you don't love something you won't be moved to nurture or to save it personal connection and feeling and fantasy in regards to the natural world all build the foundation of communion with it and service to it and they also open options for receiving more benefits from it this is bill felker with poor wills almanac i'll be back again next week with notes for the first week of late spring in the meantime think about whether you really relate to any portion of the natural world around you what is that part and why what can you do for it and what can it give to you bill felker contributes to newspapers nationwide including the yellow springs news bill resides in yellow springs poor wills almanac is also available as a podcast at wyso.org That's it for this edition of YSO Weekend on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday morning at 10. Now on YSO, it's Vic McCunis with the Book Nook.